You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. I certainly do appreciate it. Before we jump into today's show, I want to let you know that this episode is being recorded on December 26th. It's the Monday after Christmas, and the markets are closed today, and a lot of other folks are out of the office. So today, we're going to be picking up some conversations we've had here over the past few weeks on AOA, but do be sure to stay with us. Tomorrow, we'll be diving right back in live with some of the news, notably that cattle on feed report that came out Friday afternoon. Headline numbers, total cattle inventory down 3%, and we had placements down 2%, with marketings up 1%. We saw record November marketing since the series was started back in 1996. Chris Swift of Swift Trading will join us first thing on tomorrow's episode. Today, however, we're going to talk with Dan Erdman. He's the project marketing manager with Farm Rescue. We're going to get the scoop on what Farm Rescue does, and then we're going to talk about the Water Resources Development Act. We're going to talk about the WTO, and we're going to dig in on the American chestnut. But let's start with Dan Erdman. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. We really appreciate it. You know, let's dive in. For folks who have perhaps not heard of Farm Rescue, Dan, give us the the 10,000-foot view. What is it that your organization does? You bet. Uh, So Farm Rescue is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we're dedicated to extending the livelihood of farm and ranch families uh, during times of crisis. So we come in with the equipment and volunteers to, to lend a helping hand during planting, haying, harvest, livestock feeding uh, assistance. And uh, again, the whole point is to, to get them through that particular season and, and hopefully on to the next. And that is so crucial in agriculture. If you're not there doing the work, you're not going to have the products to sell. Dan, can you talk a little bit about how Farm Rescue came to be? What was the impetus for this organization? Well, it's funny you should talk about a 10,000-foot view of the organization. Uh, our, our nonprofit was started by a man named Bill Gross who is a pilot and uh, he grew up on a farm in North Dakota and, and like a, you know, a lot of families, uh, they, they just couldn't make things work. And, and Bill was encouraged to go on to college and, and again, became a, a pilot. He's flown for UPS for, for many years now um, and a lot of trips over the ocean and, and across uh, the world here. And um, on one of those trips, he was, you know, just making small talk with a co-pilot of his about, what their plans were after retirement. And, and Bill said he's always wanted to get a tractor and, uh, you know, go from farm to farm and just be this good Samaritan helping farm families. And, and his co-pilot kind of challenged him back then. That was right around 2005. You know, why wait until retirement to, to do that? And uh, it kind of struck a chord with Bill. And, and that's kind of where the initial seed was planted for Farm Rescue. Um, again, he, uh, he uh, started uh, this nonprofit, and, and it's grown a lot since 2005 when it was first founded. Uh, we're up to seven states. We're about to add an eighth. Uh, and again, those services have grown too. And it started with planting in the Dakotas. Um, and again, it's all volunteers. So uh, a pretty small group of volunteers that first year, but word has spread and, and many more people have jumped on board to, to support this mission in the field and financially. Um, and, and now, again, we're uh, offering planting, haying, harvest, livestock feeding assistance, and, and adding our eighth state 
uh, come 2023. And it's incredible when you think about this has been in existence since 2006, Dan, I believe was the first farm helped. How many different farmers and farm families has Farm Rescue worked with in a time of crisis to get that crop out or get that, that livestock fed? Yeah, so again, it's been a lot of different uh, reasons uh, we're on the farm and a lot of different services provided, but uh, we are planning this spring, it's looking like we will be assisting our 1,000th farm family since 2006. So wow. a lot of different uh, a lot of different families uh, touched by the, the helping hand of Farm Rescue and a lot of communities too, because uh, again, every one of those families is important to those rural communities. And uh, so it's just the, the ripple effect of, of what's being done at this organization, the incredible people that we have supporting it uh, has, has truly grown and, and made a tremendous impact for a lot of folks. And Dan, for our audience in particular, the reason I wanted to talk about Farm Rescue is twofold, because you can, if you are a farm family suffering that crisis, you can reach out for help, get some folks to come onto your operation, apply for assistance. Can you talk a little bit about how that process works and how you select the families who end up getting help? Absolutely. So it, it is an application process and, and we try to make it pretty simple because we realize, uh, you know, there's a lot of stress already happening for, for a lot of those folks and, and we don't want to add to that burden through the process. So again, pretty streamlined uh, application process. You can do it right through our website. It's, it's farmrescue.org. Um, uh, again, uh, the three kind of main qualifiers we say are injury, illness, or natural disaster. So if you, if you find yourself going through, uh, you know, ongoing cancer treatments, um, again, farming and ranching are, are some of the most dangerous professions uh, on the face of the earth. And, and so there's a lot of accidents that happen no matter how careful you're trying to be out there on the farm. Uh, and so we, we help a lot of folks that have those unexpected injuries. So if you find yourself going through a difficult time like that, hop on our website, farmrescue.org. You can fill out an application right there. We'd love to to you know, review that application, it goes to our board of directors. And um, again, when folks are reaching out to us, it's it's always a great need. And and uh, you know, a very very vast majority of those that uh, that apply for assistance are approved for assistance. So uh, we also take referrals because, as you might imagine, farmers and ranchers are very prideful people. They don't always uh, want to ask for that help themselves. So we rely heavily on you know spouses, neighbors, relatives, just people in the community that that have taken notice of a family going through a difficult time or a farmer going through a difficult time. Um, they let us know about that. We can then reach out to them and say, here's what we have to offer. And then once you reach out, once that assistance has been granted and you put the team together, it's those volunteers, Dan, that come in those angels and blue for oh, angels in blue for farm rescue. Can you talk about how folks can sign up to be a volunteer and what that looks like? Absolutely. Again, we we have people that come from all walks of life too. You might imagine uh, we we have a few farmers, uh, current farmers, retired farmers that are out here supporting our efforts in the field and operating that equipment. But not everyone uh, has a background in agriculture. We have military veterans and uh, law enforcement officers, uh, pastors, again, other pilots like our founder and president. Um, we have a rocket scientist that comes up uh, when he can in the spring from uh, from Alabama, works for NASA. So just people of all varieties that come up here. And, and those are some of the, the incredible stories of, of farm rescue and, and the work that's being done is just the folks that are that are offering that hand up. Again, it's not a handout. There's no um, no money handed handed over by anyone. It, it's uh, it's tangible support. We call it a hand up to get them. Absolutely. That season. But yeah, just 
incredible people that are that are out there serving as our boots ground and again i say our website is kind of a one-stop shop uh, again you hop on there click on the volunteer page and and you can learn a little bit more about volunteering at farm rescue if it's something you feel called to do go ahead and sign up Absolutely, folks. We're always game to help out our neighbors. Farm Rescue is a way to take that agriculture consideration and extend it truly to these other nine states. We've been speaking with Dan Erdman of Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Have a, have a happy holidays and a great Christmas season here. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to talk about the passage of the Water Resources Development Act with Dustin Davidson, Director of Government Relations at the Waterways Council. Stay here. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. And each month, we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month. And you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. I can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with Geeks On Site. Our geeks literally come on site. No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. 
So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Hopefully you all had a wonderful Christmas holiday yesterday. Today, December 26th, the markets are closed and most folks are out of the office. So we are picking up some conversations we've had over the past few weeks. Now, one of those conversations was about the passage of a very important piece of legislation. The Water Resources Development Act. This must be passed every two years. It helps fund that inland waterway system. Joining us today for an update is Dustin Davidson, Director of Government Relations for the Waterways Council. Dustin, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, let's talk about this 2022 word up piece of legislation. Dustin, we have seen the waterways get all sorts of headlines uh, throughout this year as the supply chain challenges and the low water level compromised uh, movement on the Mississippi. Did that put a little extra pep in legislators' steps to get this thing done? Uh, yeah, it definitely did a little bit, but I, th- I want to go back to what you said in the beginning. You know, this is a biennial piece of legislation done every two years. And for a while, Congress wasn't on that track. You know, we'd have one every four, maybe every six, go through a long span without any authorizations or any new projects. And so Congress got back into the the process of doing this every two years. And so while everything that was going on this year certainly, you know, added to that fire, um, Congress has been really good at staying on schedule and making sure that this is something that they keep on track every two years, along with your defense spending and regular appropriations and things like that. And Dustin, let's talk a little bit about the word of process. In, in ag, we're used to the farm bill. We're used to how that can shake up the industry and everybody kind of focuses on it. WERDA, is that similar in the waterways industry? Is this something that the industry watches year in and year out? Oh, definitely. Um, and it, like you said, it's just like the farm bill. Um, it's very similar to appropriations or a highway bill in that. It's a, it's a bill about projects. And when you're dealing with projects, you know, there's a lot of steps involved the environmental processes, you have to engage with stakeholders, you have to engage with even other members who are on the other side of the waterway, right? Everybody has a different interest. And so this process, you know, it starts with the year before the bill is even passed, members are coming forward with their priorities. The Army Corps is coming forward saying, hey, here are the projects that we would like to see move forward. Um, Then you also have conversations with the White House on funding, you know, what's available for certain projects and what can be moving forward. Because I think, you know, just like anybody else's home finances, you never want to put something on the books that you have trouble paying for later down the line. And so there's there's a bit of a balancing act that's required in terms of authorizations for spending. Uh, but yeah, the process is, is, is actually very fun to be a part of, um, working with members of Congress to get their priorities done is always uh, something that we at WCI take uh, very seriously because it's the best way to partner with these members and, you know, folks back home like yourself who are relying on them for, you know, either uh, sufficient transportation, water quality, whatever it may be in that word of bill. Well, so let's talk through those projects that did receive authorization here in this word of bill. It was about a $38 billion bill, as I understand it. Dustin, where's that money going to go? 
Um, so there's about 33 chiefs of, uh, reports, which are projects that are authorized, um, and that goes across the spectrum from the Mississippi River tributaries to um, it can go to some environmental projects, navigation. Um, there are many, uh, many things. For us, we didn't really have anything in there specifically that was a highlight of a project, but what we did have that was included is our cost share um, adjustment from 65-35. That was supposed to expire in 2031. Um, we were lucky enough to work with both committees to get that expiration date uh, wiped out. So it's 65-35 um, moving forward forever. And that allows us, when we do have those projects ready to be coming up, we have a set cost share uh, with the Inland Watery Trust Fund that makes sure that we have funding available. And Dustin, I'm really glad you brought up that Inland Waterway Trust Fund. Of course, this funding mechanism that you alluded to there, that 65-35, that 65% of funding for new projects comes from the general fund, only 35% from the Inland Waterways Trust Fund. And as you mentioned, that's a, a tremendous advantage for folks who use the Inland Waterways. Can, can you tell us a little bit about how those two groups function? What's the interaction between the IWTF and the general fund when it comes to these big projects? Yeah, so operators and shippers on the Inland water tra Waterway Transportation System, and the best way to think about it is Mississippi River, Ohio River, um, parts of the Missouri River, um, Gulf Intercoastal Waterway, and um, the McClellan-Kirk system. Those members pay 29 cents per gallon of diesel fuel used on the system to transport cargos. Um, that 29-cent tax um, that we pay it goes into the Inland Waterway Trust Fund, which serves as a pot of money to, to be the match, the non-federal match for any Inland Waterway tr uh, Trust Fund or any in, in, Inland Waterway modernization projects that we have going on. So you said it, you know, 6535, um, you know, looking at it right now in the appropriations bill, there's about $39 million for Chickamauga Lock. That means about $13 million is coming out of that trust fund. The rest is going to be paid for by the federal government. And that's a huge, huge step for us because it allows us to, to spread that trust fund out a little bit more and get more projects going in different parts of the country as opposed to, you know, focusing in one area. Well, and that makes so much sense. And Dustin, the, the reason I wanted to bring up the Inland Water Trust Fund is because the the challenge looking forward, of course, we've got infrastructure costs continuing to climb with inflation, and I would imagine those barges are getting more efficient in the waterways, which would make the, the tax paid less. Is that the crunch that that trust fund was feeling? Um, in a way, yes. You know, it, we also saw just a decrease in movement of cargoes uh, following COVID, and, you know, we also had this low water situation this year. And so there are a ton of things that can really... Um, I would say, you know, factor into what the final balance of that trust fund is. But overall, this industry has maintained navigation on the Mississippi River, even in low water years. Um, we've had some pretty, pretty remarkable record years in terms of transportation. And the number going into the trust fund is only going up. So, you know, we're, we're feeling pretty confident that while that could happen, um, we don't see that happening anytime in the near future. And as we modernize more, more of these locks, we're able to move more toes down the river. And as you do that, you're moving more cargoes, able to do more. And, you know, we see that as an opportunity to grow the trust fund. Uh, and, and, and when I say grow the trust fund, I don't mean we want to keep a large balance in there, but I mean grow it in terms of having more money available to spend on projects.
Absolutely. Trust funds are only good if they can do the things you want to do with them, and you got to have funds in order to do that. Speaking of funding, Dustin, one of the things that I'd like to think we ought to make mention of is that WERDA authorizes funding, but it doesn't appropriate funding. As I understand, can you talk about how that's different and what you expect on the appropriations front? Yeah. So like you said, WERDA authorizes. That basically just goes and says to the Army Corps, hey, you are allowed to spend money on this project. Once you get your authorization, you then have to turn to the appropriations committee to then ask them how much. Um, in that process, the core does work with the appropriations committee and the administration to come up with what they say their capability is or what they're capable of completing in a fiscal year. And then from there, we work with the appropriations committee and members of Congress to try to get as close to that number as we possibly can. So if a, if the core comes out and says they have $100 million in capability for the Navigation Ecosystem Sustainability Program, then that's the number we're going out for, and that's how we match that authorization with appropriations. We want to try to make sure the appropriation keeps up with that cost that the project was initially authorized at. Okay, now that makes sense. And of course, going through a separate pro, 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 uh, a separate way to get that funds, of course, adds time. When do you expect appropriations typically in a congressional year? <laughs> well, um, again, if this was your own pocketbook, uh, I think you would expect them to be at the beginning of every fiscal year, October 1st. Um, we, we haven't necessarily seen that in recent years. Um, appropriations has lagged on all the way till the end of the year, which creates difficulty for us in terms of contract delivery. Um, for us, ideally, we would love to see it October 1st. We were happy to see the appropriations bill move through um, the final omnibus this week, which provides funding for the Army Corps. I think another record $8.66 billion in total. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we're always happy to see the final bill, but if, if we could get it October 1st or September 30th, that would make life a lot easier. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, for the WCI members, as they look out to 2023, Dustin, are they excited for the potential in the waterways? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a it's a very exciting year, um, you know, mainly because you see a lot of members in Congress who has, has spent a lot of time there. Um, they've been champions for us. They've carried our water, no pun intended, for, for decades. And now a lot of them are either retiring or we're not fortunate enough to continue serving in that role. And so we have a new crop of members that we have to educate. And that's always fun about this job. And, um, you know, we're really looking forward to getting out there and talking with these new districts and making sure that they hear our message. Understanding how important that inland waterway is to all of us is a vital job. Dustin Davidson, Director, Government Relations at the Waterways Council. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Y'all have a good one. And folks, stay with us. AOA will continue here after this break. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from 
Turkish invaders. The baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at this market trade headed towards the Christmas holiday, we are seeing moderately higher action in the grain trade with mixed activity in the livestock trade as well, as it's a fairly quiet uh, trading day, it appears here headed to the Christmas holiday. We did get some sales on the Daily Wire reported Friday morning of soybeans to unknown destinations, 124,000 metric tons, as well as as 150,000 metric tons of corn reported to Mexico. So we see those sales maybe giving us a little bit of support underneath this market. Stock market quiet to slightly lower after we got better than expected GDP numbers yesterday and seemingly getting a little follow-through pressure on Friday. Crude oil up about 2% on Friday session as well. Meantime, we look over at livestock trade relatively mixed there. We do have a cattle on feed and quarterly hogs and pigs report due out on Friday afternoon and traders are seemingly squaring up positions ahead of that report. The estimates for cattle on feed as of December 1st at 97.1% of a year ago. Placements at 95.8%. Marketing's at 101%. The quarterly hogs and pigs report estimates of all hogs and pigs on December 1, 98.5% of a year ago. Kept for breeding at 99.7% and kept for marketing at 98.4%. Overall, we're still going to have some of the same storylines here throughout these markets, including South American West demand, China, COVID concerns, and more as we head into the final holiday-shortened trading week of the year. Soybeans and winter wheat, the upside leaders with beans up around 10 to 13, winter wheat up around 10 to 13 as well, and moderate strength in corn and spring wheat here as we work through the trading day. That's a check of the market trade. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america this is mike pearson and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world information farmers and ranchers need to know aoa now back to mike pearson 
Thanks for joining us today, ladies and gentlemen. And I tell you what, one of the issues we are going to be grappling with in the year ahead as agriculturalists is how to deal with Mexico as they look to implement a ban in 2014 on GMO corn imports from the United States. This is something they have put in place, or put in place rather, in 2020. They have continued to push for it. Now, conversations are moving up. National Corn Growers has been very active on this issue. USDA has been pushing as well with lots of the conversations urging the government to use the USMCA, that Mexico-Canada agreement, as a tool to uh, encourage the Mexicans to uh, rethink this policy. Another approach might be to use the World Trade Organization. Joining me now to explore that option is Dr. Mark Bush. He's the Carl Landiger Professor of International Business Diplomacy at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Dr. Bush, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Let's start with at USMCA versus WTO, what are the key distinctions on an issue like the Mexican ban on the importation of GMO corn? This is a really good case, and both courts would be likely to produce a win. The issue is really, where is the most bang for the buck in winning? And in this regard, the WTO is the clear preferred choice. Remember that we have glyphosate issues in the European Union at the moment as well. And the case law that would ultimately drive the U.S. win against uh, Mexico's ban on GM corn would be WTO case law. So it's certainly the case that we could win in either court. But for the benefits that would be won more broadly and for the deterrent value of the win, it'd be much preferable to be having this case go to the WTO. And I think so much hinges on here on the definition of win. Dr. Bush, when you talk about both cases where, or both courts would likely produce a win, what does a win look like under the WTO? What could they do? Well, the win would take the form of declaring that Mexico has no science to back up their regime and that moreover, the science they do have is applied in a discriminatory manner. So for example, one of the first things that would come up in this case is that Mexico goes one way on corn, but in a very different way on cotton, soybeans, and wheat. And these are red flags in a trade case of this type. So the idea would be that Mexico would be found to have violated either WTO or USMC rules, but the issue would be the discriminatory application of science and whether a ban is overly trade restrictive in this case. And then we get to the point where with a win in hand, legally speaking, then you turn to the politics of negotiating market access. Aha. So the win doesn't necessarily guarantee any more GMO corn into Mexico necessarily. It gives some leverage to the negotiators who are then going back to the table. Am I understanding it right? That's right. It gives a lot of leverage. But moreover, another way to see this is that it gives Mexican legislators the language to explain why it is that coming into compliance is necessary. So on the one hand, yes, the U.S. ends up getting some leverage by virtue of the legal victory. On the other hand, though, it's equally important that the Mexican legislators have the ability to rationalize for their own domestic constituents why it is they lost and what it is that will take to come into compliance. Gotcha. If they go the USMCA route, it would more be a dictate, this is the way it goes, you have no say. Would that be the objection to that particular avenue? 
Both courts are going to rule pretty much the same way based on the same reasoning. It's going to be going down to the basics of the science, of which Mexico has none. And the story that Mexico likes to perpetuate in its ban is that it is doing this based on the precautionary principle. It doesn't have a foot to stand on in this regard. So technically, the wins will be almost identical in both courts. But again, the wider value of the win will be more fully realized if it happens at the WTO because Mexico is hardly the only country playing games right now on GM. That's a great point. So going through the WTO, as you say, that establishes it as case law within the WTO. So if any future country tries this, they've already got the, the what the roadmap would look like to stop it in place. Do I understand that? That's right. And so think about it this way. China's genetically modified regime is really sketchy. They do things that no other country on earth does. And part of the bar to clear in the Mexico corn case would be what is good science and how is it used in a non-discriminatory way? That would send a very loud message to China to get its own house in order, lest it be next on the hit list. Aha. Now, Dr. Bush, I'm curious, looking at this case moving forward, we've got these two avenues, USMCA, it's definitely the shiny new thing that we've got in hand to use, and the WTO, and I'm wondering, is the WTO still working like it's supposed to? Could we actually get to a win in that organization? That's a really good question, and the problem right now is that by virtue of U.S. policy, the appellate body, the second-tier court, hasn't been functioning since December 2019. So here's the gamble. The U.S. wins at the panel stage, the first-tier court, and Mexico appeals, and there's no appellate body to hear the appeal. So that would really stymie the progression of this case toward the possibility, for example, of retaliation, the United States retaliating against Mexico in this case. But in with respect to the appellate body not functioning, yes, this is a big jam. And the U.S. is being grilled this week in Geneva on why it continues to block appointments to the appellate body and what it will take for the United States to unblock appointments to the appellate body. So, if I was advising U.S. agriculture, I'd be making a very loud, boisterous case to my representatives in Congress saying it's time to let the appellate body get back to work because we've got a lot of health and safety battles in trade looming on the horizon. And it's not just China and Mexico, the two we've discussed so far. We've got a number of very provocative policies in the works in the European Union and to defeat a European policy that is discriminatory, you really do need the final word from the WTO's appellate body. So what is the U.S. saying? How are they answering these questions in Geneva about the blockage at the appellate body? Dr. Bush, is there any way we could make progress here in the short term? So the U.S. has been clinging to the idea that its concern about the appellate body is that verdicts rendered by the appellate body are often, if not usually, breaching etiquette and going into the realm of legislation from the bench or judicial activism. It's an interesting argument. 
it can be addressed, but this week the United States isn't telling anybody anything about it, what it wants. And that has been the problem really since 2019. It's very difficult to negotiate with the United States when the United States refuses to explain what it will take to unblock the appellate body. Okay, so stalls on that front. Uh, Dr. Bush, while we're talking, and we've got this appellate body not functioning, so the WTO, you can't really do anything beyond an appeal past that first panel. Does this mean this would potentially be an opportunity to do things that the WTO has frowned on? And I think in agriculture, cattle industry specifically, MCOOL, mandatory country of origin labeling. What would happen if the U.S. were to pass that now? It's really an interesting and, and not too distant prospect. The fact that MCOOL is being rejuvenated to replace what was struck down in 2012 by the WTO is quite provocative. And yes, this would give a little bit of lease on life. Don't count, though, on other countries not challenging it, namely Canada and Mexico, almost immediately at the WTO, even looking for that first panel ruling to condemn MCOOL. MCOOL's got some problems, though, and it is cute that it now has the moniker MCOOL and being mandatory because it's no doubt that the United States feels that the problem it ran into back in 2012 was that it was a mandatory regime, therefore a technical barrier to trade, and thus subject to the obligations of that agreement at the WTO. My concern is a little different. There's no way MCOOL can be made to work to clear the bar of that original verdict. The verdict came down to the disconnect between the requirements for bookkeeping and accounting, and verification for that matter, and the amount of information conveyed to consumers through the label at point of sale. To meet that would make a label almost impenetrable. And as the United States reluctantly conceded at the WTO back in the old-fashioned days, nobody's going to pay for this information. And that's why it more or less had to be mandatory because there was no way to make it voluntary. Okay. So if it does get legs again and come into law here in the coming years, could Mexico or Canada unilaterally slap tariffs on the industry or would it still have to go through the WTO? Canada and Mexico would both either file at USMCA and see what they get or go to the WTO. And then it would be up to them as to how they reacted minus the appellate body. Please don't misunderstand what's happening in today's global economy. Europe is arming itself to move to retaliation even absent the appellate body. Canada also has a policy designed to do essentially the same thing. If the United States continues to foot drag on the appellate body, and moreover, continues to defy WTO verdicts like it's now going to do on steel and aluminum, other countries will mimic and U.S. agriculture will be one of the main losers in that battle. All right. Lots of things to think about. This is a huge issue, folks, and we are not done discussing it. We will get Professor Bush on again in the future to discuss it further. Dr. Mark Bush from Georgetown University, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. And stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to look at the potential return of the American chestnut. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to The Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on The Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with Geeks On Site. Our geeks literally come on site. No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879.
The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. You know, we are in the holiday season. Cold weather is bearing down on a lot of you folks tuning in right now. And a hundred years ago, this time of year and this temperature would have been accompanied by the scents of chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Of course, that's been celebrated in Christmas music. But for my lifetime, I don't believe I have ever had a chestnut. The American chestnut tree has been struggling for quite some time, but science might be bringing it back. Joining me now with an update is Eric Carlson. He's a research project assistant with the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project at the State University of New York. And Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Let's talk first about the American Chestnut. Eric, what happened to that tree? Why can we not roast chestnuts over an open fire anymore? Well, the American Chestnut used to be really common in the eastern United States throughout the forest, but about a hundred years ago, a uh, disease was imported on Japanese chestnuts that absolutely decimated the species. And so for, since about the 1950s, uh, the American chestnut's been functionally extinct. And it's been functionally extinct. That's incredible to think about. But now, Eric, as we look out to 2023, there's the potential to bring this tree back, albeit in a modified fashion. Can you tell us what you've been working on there at the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project? Yeah, so since the American chestnut was lost, there's been many attempts to restore it to, to the wild through different techniques like breeding and, and other things uh, with not a lot of success. But about 30 years ago, we began developing American chestnuts using modern uh, molecular biology tools similar to the ones that are used to produce modern crop varieties like BT corn and uh, Roundup Ready soybean. And using that same technology, we've been able to introduce a disease resistance gene into American chestnut that allows it to survive infection from uh, this fungal pathogen known as chestnut blight. Fascinating. So Eric, where did you find the gene that was able to be inserted into the chestnut? The gene that we use is from wheat. Uh, it's actually found in most grasses and many other plants too. It's actually a very common plant gene. But what, what it actually does is detoxifies the acid that the fungus uses to attack the tree. So this wheat gene uh, detoxifies oxalic acid 
and uh, prevents the, the fungus that's infecting the tree from actually killing the tree. Okay, so if I understand it then, Eric, the fungus is still here. We can't get rid of the fungus. It's still going to attack these trees. But with this genetic modification, the attacking substance doesn't hurt the tree. Am I getting the gist of it? Yeah, that's right. It's a little bit different strategy than you would see from like a, a pesticide. So instead of actually killing the fungus, we are detoxifying the acid that the fungus produces to attack the tree. So the fungus can still live on the tree and reproduce on the tree, but it's not going to be able to actually kill the tree during the infection process. Okay. All right, Eric. Now, as we look out to the future, when we think of genetic modification, of course, our listeners are very familiar with it in the world of crop production. These uh, these modifications tend to come out in crops that are going to be commercialized. They'll be planted. They'll be harvested. This is different. Can you talk to us about where you see the future of this darling American chestnut tree going? Yeah, this is a little bit different uh, compared to previously approved genetically engineered plants in that it's only for the tree to survive better in the wild. It's not necessarily been optimized for like an agricultural situation. All it's doing is getting uh, put into a position where it can survive like it did before the blight came. And what we want to do is be able to introduce our trees back into the forest so they can begin uh, regenerating naturally as they would have before the blight was here and just go back to doing their job. And that's where things get interesting, right, Eric? Because if you had just produced a hybrid chestnut tree, the American Chinese chestnut, you'd be able to go and put those trees everywhere in the forest. But because it's a GM tree or genetically engineered tree, you've got to get USDA approval. And how has that process gone? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Because we use these molecular biology tools, we're regulated by the three federal regulatory agencies, the EPA, the USDA, and the FDA. And uh, we've been working with them for several years now, going back about 10 years. But about two years ago, we submitted our petition to the USDA for deregulation. And in that petition, it contained many different studies that we've performed on these trees, ranging from just their characterization uh, molecularly with their genetics, but also for environmental interaction studies, where we took our trees and we tested it against animals and plants and fungus that occur naturally in the American chestnut's ecosystem to make sure there weren't any kinds of off-target effects or or any kind of uh, deleterious um, things happening as a result of introducing our trees. And obviously we didn't find any anything like that and uh, we submitted that to the USDA for them to to uh, look over. It is incredible. The specific actions that you can perform with genetic technology is incredible. Eric, what would have happened to the genetic code if you had just cross-hybridized, linked an American and a Chinese uh, chestnut tree? Would that have solved the problem and would that have caused bigger issues? Well, that's something they actually tried to do for a very long time, and, and they're still continuing to attempt to create these advanced generation hybrids. But the, the problem with that is the resistance genes in the, in the resistant species, like Chinese chestnut, are quantitative. So there's actually many genes involved. It's not as simple as a one or two gene. It's actually genes that are scattered all across the entire uh, genetic structure of the plant and that makes it very difficult to breed for because you have to, to select for many different genes all at once. 
And uh, another issue with that is that the American chestnut is able to survive in the forest by growing to be the tallest chestnut species on Earth. And so when you begin hybridizing it with other species, you begin reducing its actual stature, which makes it more difficult for it to compete in a forest setting. Wow. All right, folks, well, stay tuned. Keep an eye out for the American chestnut. It may not be too many years, and we'll be able to enjoy that holiday treat once again, thanks to Modern Science. We've been talking with Eric Carlson from SUNY ESF. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Have a great day. Well, thanks for listening, folks. Hope you have a wonderful day. We'll see you tomorrow for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready. And health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we We are are the the foundation foundation fighting fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fight.